Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. This week, we've got something a little different for you. There was no podcast on Friday, but we did release a discussion with Donald Amstad from Aberdeen Standard Investments, which has proven to be the most popular video in LiveWire's history. At the time that I'm recording this, nearly 150,000 people had watched the video on YouTube and had generated over 4,000 likes and 1,500 comments. This content clearly struck a chord with the LiveWire audience, and as I know many of you exclusively listen to the podcast, I wanted to share it with everyone. This is not a discussion as we normally do on the podcast, but instead, Donald will share his views with you for the next 20 minutes. And as always, if you're loving the rules of investing, why not tell someone about it? Pick your favorite episode and send it to a friend, or just head on over to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe. Either way, you're helping to increase the profile of the podcast, and therefore the quality of the guests that I can bring to you. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. It's quite interesting to put into perspective what's happening today. So if you go back to 1998 and the Asian financial crisis, uh, when dollar funding dried up for countries like South Korea or Thailand or Malaysia or Indonesia, countries that had been running very large current account deficits. The good doctors from the International Monetary Fund and the US Treasury came out to Asia, and I was around at the time. And every single president, finance minister, prime minister, central bank governor in every Asian country wanted to print money in response to the Asian crisis. And the IMF said, no, 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 you can't do that, because if you do, you're going to end up like Zimbabwe, and you don't want to do that, do you? Uh, and so they didn't print money. And so in late uh, 98 in Asia, you had banks going bust, you had companies going under, you had recession, you had unemployment going up, you had real economic, financial and political pain. But it was cathartic because economies slowed down, current account deficits disappeared, they swung back into surplus, and the green shoots of recovery came through and eventually central banks were able to start cutting rates again and we were off to the races again a couple of years later. I sat uh, in Asia again through the global financial crisis of 2007-2008 uh, and the first part of 2009. And uh, we had a crisis, it wasn't really a global crisis, it was a Western financial crisis. And there was absolute shock in Asia because what did Western governments and central banks do? They did exactly what they had told Asian governments not to do 10 years earlier. They went and printed money. The Fed printed money, the ECB printed money, the BOJ, the Bank of England, the Swiss National Bank, they all started printing money. And Asia was in absolute shock. 
And of course, when central banks were printing money, what they've done is they've, uh, they've bought bonds with, uh, with those proceeds. And uh, we now have a situation where, for example, the ECB have bought so many bonds, and the Swiss National Bank is a huge buyer of, of German government bonds because they're intervening massively to try and prevent the Swiss franc going up, for example. So that, as you say, we now have this situation where we have negative yields on bonds. Um, we have the Swiss 10-year government bond yielding almost uh, minus 1%, uh, and the Swiss 50-year bond uh, at a negative yield to maturity now. Uh, these are extraordinary times, and uh, they are very, very dangerous. And the great contrast I would draw today between the emerging world and the developing world is this. In the emerging world, economic and monetary policy is broadly orthodox. It's the West that is running unorthodox economic and monetary policy. And it's the West, ironically, that is now on the, uh, on the cliff edge. There is, a, there is a crisis in the West which is financial and that is becoming economic and it's becoming social and it's becoming political. So if I look at risk now, I would say ironically that emerging markets broadly are a safe haven. It's the developed world that is really at risk now because if the US yield curve is right and the inversion of twos, tens in the treasury market is the harbinger of the next recession, which it has been every time historically, then central banks in the West have very, very limited firepower today to respond to economic weakness. There really are no more bullets left in the gun, or very, very few. They fired all the bullets. We already have interest rates at almost zero. We've already got massively expanded um, central bank balance sheets. So what do they do um, if we go into recession? And of course, we've reached the, the limits, I think, of this uh, monetary experiment in the West. And I say that because of the terrible damage this experiment is doing to individuals, to banks, to pension funds, and to insurance companies. If you take my mother, for example, a little old lady who lives in London, she doesn't earn any interest on her bank account anymore, and she feels poor. And she feels that she has to economize with her spending. And I go to London and see her a couple of times a year, and I say, look, mum, it's okay. You've got enough money. Please buy that nice bottle of, uh, of wine or that nice jar of jam. Treat yourself. You're okay. But she says, no, 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 I'm not earning any money on my savings. I need to economize. And I think that's a very common theme. If you think about banks globally, when do banks make money? Banks make money when interest rates are high, when yield curves are steep and credit spreads are wide. You have the opposite of all those three conditions uh, in the world at the moment, especially in Europe. 
and you just look at the share price of the major European banks, I mean, they're cratering. Um, this is very, very dangerous. These banks can't make money in a negative yielding environment where yield curves are flat and credit spreads are so tight. If you think about pension funds, I went to see a pension fund in Europe not so long ago, and I said, good morning, sir, how are you? Terrible. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. What happened? You know, has your wife died or you know, has your child been taken into hospital? He said, no, 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 no. He said, uh, I know that I have about 8 billion Swiss francs of assets, but with the 10-year Swiss government bond at minus 50 basis points, I don't know what my liabilities are. Because how can you discount by a negative risk-free rate? It's mathematically impossible. You can't do it. And he said, tomorrow I'm going to go to the board and I'm going to suggest that we take all our money out of negative yielding bonds and hold physical bank notes in a bank vault at the bank down the road so that we can pay our pensioners out of physical cash because at least physical cash maintains its value in nominal terms. And pension funds around the world are seeing a massive increase in their liabilities because long-term yields have come down and just last night the 30-year treasury went through 2%. And then you have insurance companies globally that have this incredible mismatch between you know, the yield of the assets that they can go out and buy today and, and, and the value of, of, of their liabilities, which were set when yields and interest rates were much, much higher. You know, the only people who've made money in the last 10 years are the 1% of the 1%, the elite who hold equities. And of course, we have this huge um, bubble in the, in, in the stock market and 99.9% .9 of the population have been left behind. If you think about traditional portfolio theory, you know, what has been the role of, of government bonds been in portfolios? You know, it's been the asset class that makes money when risky assets fall off. You know, in 1998, when equities fell, if you had bonds, you did really well because bond prices went up and equities went down. Um, and you know, if you did your portfolio rebalancing and sold out of your bonds and bought equities, and if you did that in every bump along the road over the last 20 or 30 years, you've, you've done well. But it's always been, every crisis we've had has always been about a bubble bursting in in 1998 in emerging markets. In 2007, it was, it was credit markets. In, in 1987, it was, it, it was the stock market. In 2000, it was in tech. What we've never had to cope with before is when there is a bubble in the risk-free asset class. What happens when that goes pop? What's the new risk-free? In an environment where the West finally wakes up and takes the medicine, it's going to impact everybody, including emerging markets. So emerging markets will not be immune. But I think in that type of environment, relatively, emerging markets will do better. And emerging markets will do better because they will be able to respond more proactively. And they're able to do that because, frankly, emerging market balance sheets are far stronger than the balance sheets of the developed world. Let's take the United States. I mean, a lot of people focus on the debt in the United States. And 
everywhere you look in the United States, it's awash with debt. The government debt under President Trump is out of control. Students are up to their ears in debt. And corporate America is the most highly leveraged it's ever been. Corporate America is more highly leveraged today than it was in 2007. And in the US bond markets, there's $3 trillion of corporate debt sitting at triple B. Now, the US high yield market is only $1 trillion. If some of these very highly leveraged triple B names are faced with an economic slowdown and their business models go kaput, then they're going to start sliding into double B territory. And the question we have to ask is who the hell is going to buy all this newly high yielding debt that is now double B or single B? Yeah, one trillion of new high yield debt just doesn't go into an existing one trillion dollar uh, bond market. It just doesn't make sense. It has to massively reprice. And of course, as it reprices, it further blows up this highly leveraged model. But debt isn't the problem in the United States. It's liabilities. I would urge everyone watching this video to go to a website called usdebtclock.org and look at the bottom of that chart in the middle and there is one clock that's ticking away, which is the liabilities of the US government. Now, the US economy is roughly 20 trillion, and the debt of the US government is roughly 20 trillion. So it's 100% of GDP. It may be 21 uh, or so now. But the problem is the liabilities. The liabilities of the US government now are over $124 trillion. Now, what does that mean to the man in the street? What that means is that US government has promised to pay people for healthcare, for unemployment, for social security, for whatever it is. They've made promises to pay people $124 trillion. But they haven't funded it. That's why it's an unfunded liability. Where the hell is the US government going to get $124 trillion from? There is no way on earth that they can pay this money to the people to whom they owe it in terms of a currency that is worth um, you know, much more than, than, than toilet paper. It just cannot be done. And that's the problem. And then you're going to get a fight in the United States over who gets the claims on the US government that they can pay. And that means you probably break down into civil war. And frankly, it's almost like civil war is breaking out in America at the moment. You know, if you are black, if you are brown, if you are yellow, if you are a woman, if you are gay, if you are Muslim, you are already under attack in America. It's happening. And it's, uh, it's very sad. Society is breaking down. Um, we have this extraordinary president in the United States. We have Brexit happening uh, in Europe. Uh, and the UK government, uh, obviously I'm a POM, uh, the UK government is in, <coughs> in similar dire straits. Uh, uh, the UK government has similarly made uh, promises that, uh, to people to pay that they po can't possibly keep. 
We have Italy threatening to come out of the European Union. Um, it's the West that's a basket case. Now, people get very worried about a country like China. What's the essential difference between China and the West? Well, there are, there are two that I can think of. One is political. Yeah, in China, there is no political cycle. Yeah, Xi Jinping is president and, uh, and he will be for a very long uh, period of time to come. There is very little doubt about that unless he falls under the, uh, the proverbial bus. But of course, the difference between the Chinese government and the American government is that the Chinese government is solvent. And the reason why they're solvent is, A, they have very low levels of debt. Secondly, they have very low levels of liability. And thirdly, they have an asset-packed balance sheet because in China you have state-owned enterprises. And state-owned enterprises are called that because they are enterprises owned by the state. And most of these enterprises in China are massively profitable. You know, the big four banks in China churn out massive profits. So governments in Asia, governments in emerging markets, um, they have very sound uh, economic and monetary policies in comparison to the West, which is heading down this uh, Zimbabwe you know, school of economics path, I'm afraid to say. Um, it's very, very sad to see it happening. And it's, v to me, it's very, very worrying. And I am, I am very worried about the West. I think it's verging on catastrophe. And what is interesting, of course, is the markets are just beginning to wake up to this. And of course, you're beginning to see this rise in volatility. I mean, we're sitting here in the middle of August. It's really only in the last couple of weeks or so that we're beginning to see this rise in market volatility. And, um, you know, if you think about what Western central banks have done over the last decade since the global financial crisis, is they've been playing whack-a-mole with volatility. Every time volatility has spiked up, they've managed to hit it on the head by some combination of cutting interest rates and or printing money. And my worry, basically, is this. It is that if we have another spike up in volatility, can the banks still pay whack-a-mole? And I, and I worry that they can't because I think we're at the end of the game, because if they do come out with another bout of QE, then banks are gonna go bust. Pension funds are gonna go bust. Insurance companies are gonna go bust. And if it pushes the stock market back up again, then the 99.9% are probably not gonna to tolerate more handouts to the 0.1%. So you, that leads to social and political instability. And so maybe we are at the point where the West finally has to take its medicine. And then we really are on the top of the roller coaster looking down. Um, and it's probably better to put a blindfold on, uh, because otherwise it's going to be a pretty scary ride.